1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra. Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today's interview is with Priya Satya who's Professor of International History at Stanford University in California. Priya's latest book is Time's Monster, History, Conscience and Brussian's Empire, which explores the role of history and historians in the development of the British Empire and also considers how the historical profession has changed in more recent times. She discussed these themes and others with BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar.
3: Okay, so uh, Priya, I wonder if we could begin actually with the title of your book. Mm -hmm. What is Time's Monster that you're referring to here?
4: Well, um, we have uh, our ordinary uh, ethical systems for judging what's right and wrong. And in the 18th century, there's a new one. We start thinking of history as an ethical idiom. And it's it's a new way of thinking about history that's meant very constructively. It's meant to help people be, behave more virtuously. But it sort of exceeds the control of the philosophers who who articulate it, and and it winds up enabling all kinds of harmful activity. And so in that sense, it's time's monster, and, you know, as a sort of homage, I guess, to Mary Shelley's novel, you know, um, about Frankenstein and his monster, in which something is created with good intentions, but just outruns the control and and in. of the of the creator, and in doing that, sort of exposes the hubris of the creator. So of a night of the Enlightenment philosophers, in this sense, who who came up with this new understanding of history as an ethical idiom.
3: So the Enlightenment is, is then a very important juncture in how people viewed the practice and the purpose of history.
4: Yes, it's it's only um, in the middle of the 18th century, you know, writes Mack, in the middle of the period that we talk about as the Enlightenment period, when um, people started to think of history as something that can guide uh, our uh, ordinary people's behavior and that has and is a way of sort of a way for us to construe meaning in our worldly existence, rather than only looking for meaning in the afterlife and in our in the spiritual realm. And you know, up to this point, um, you know, history is sort of—it's a story; it's a narrative event. It doesn't have to have any kind of higher meaning at all. And you really see quite markedly in the middle of the 18th century, philosophers like you know Adam Smith and Immanuel Kant and. Um, you know, all those familiar names really talking about history in this new uh, specific way as sort of um, really important to, to making ethical uh, selves uh, who are capable of um, um, negotiating the modern world and, and coping with um, all its challenges and, um, and in serving history uh, itself
3: and is this a view that's being held just by philosophers and thinkers or is this also viewed in the corridors of power as well
4: so uh, yes it's it's definitely um you know emerging from philosophical conversations but a lot of these philosophers are um actively participating in political debates so um it does influence a lot of policy making if you think of someone like Um, You know, Edmund Burke is a philosopher in this period, but he's also the one prosecuting uh, Warren Hastings, you know the fallen uh, uh, head of uh, British government in India, who who's uh, who undergoes an impeachment trial from 1788 to 95. Or you can think of the instance of Joseph Priestley, who is uh, a major philosopher of this period, who was a really close, uh, intimate friend of Samuel Galton, who is the the biggest um, gun supplier to the British state in this period. So. These are philosophers, but they're intimate with the corridors of power and really shape how people in those corridors think. I mean, a lot of the people in the corridors of power, I mean, especially in the realm of imperial governance, are, um, you know, literary figures, philosophers. You can think of someone like Sir William Jones, who's a jurist in India, but he's also, you know, a philologist, an orientalist scholar and many other things. So there's a lot of overlap. And these are just examples from the 18th century. As you get into the 19th century, you can think of James Mill, John Stuart Mill. You can think of James Fitzjames Stephen. And you get all the way up to Winston Churchill, who's a historian, but also the prime minister with a really long political career.
3: Now, it's interesting because actually a lot of modern day politicians have a background in history. I mean, actually, Joe Biden, I believe, is a history graduate. But do you feel that they aren't using that history in the same way that people were, say, 200 years ago.
4: Well, Biden is an interesting case because, I mean, he he's had a long life and his his degree is from the 1960s. And that's um, sort of the moment in which I think you see um, a shift in um, the historical discipline's relationship to power. Um, so, so. In some sense, he's still part of that old formation. You know, when history would be the obvious major for a young man who's, who has any kind of political ambition. Um, but in that moment, it's also um, history is also sort of the the thing you would major in if you want to be a critic of those in power, if you want to be a truth teller against the government. And I I think you see the tension between those two approaches um, in in. In, in Biden himself. I mean, we'll see how this plays out. Uh, but he's part of that earlier generation. I, um, but in, increasingly, I think, after World War II, um, his, historians started to think of themselves as, as truth-tellers against the government and critics of government um, after this realization of the way historians and historical thinking had been so complicit in imperialism until that point, and and the destructive effects of that were were so clear by the 1950s, and sort of the high moment of decolonization at that point.
3: Could you give us some examples of how historians were complicit in the rise of empire and and some of the actions that took place under that?
4: Sure. Um, so you can think of let me let me uh, pick pick an example. Um, so you know. Let's talk about Joseph Priestley, um, who writes these uh, lectures on history that try to articulate, you know, this, this Enlightenment philosophy of history, that sometimes things that appear... Bad or seem to offend your ordinary ethical judgment, um, these kinds of things happen all the time, and sometimes you sort of need to suspend your judgment and set aside those those qualms that you may have and trust that everything that 's happening is serving a providential historical purpose and war uh, he said was was some, was an example of something that might seem harmful, destructive, offensive to your ordinary uh, moral sentiments, but that you sort of have to trust is going to ultimately lead to progress and and it's going to be good for for everyone, even those who who suffer from it. Um, And he was such a close friend, as I mentioned, of uh, Samuel Galton, who was the biggest most important gunmaker in 18th century Britain. And um, Galton was a Quaker. So he had these um, very obvious uh, moral commitments as a Quaker uh, in which uh, the understanding is that war is unchristian and Quakers should not participate in any way. And yet Galton is participating, not only participating, he's making it possible for um, the British government to make war. And when this becomes controversial in the... Quaker community, and the Religious Society of Friends. Uh, he defends himself by making arguments that very, very closely echo what his friend um, Priestley has been arguing. Um, and he was even a student of Priestley's um, earlier as well, um, besides their their friendship uh, later on in life. And he basically says, look, at in the present moment in, in which providence has placed us, in the moment in which providence has placed us, so in this historical moment, he's saying, which is a divinely ordained historical moment, I really don't have any option but to do what I'm doing because the entire economy around me is... Is a, a war economy. So if I'm going to do anything industrial, it, it, it's it's going to end up contributing to war. So that's the argument he makes, and I think he makes it in earnest. and And it's because he makes that argument that he's able to continue to supply the British government with the arms it needs, and then enable all the massive conquest that goes on um, in the in the late 18th century.
3: So history itself, then, was sort of went to war with the imperialists or was one of the tools that was used to help create the British Empire.
4: Very much so, because I think what, what you see, I mean, what's so interesting about the case of the British Empire is that there's so much guilty conscience all the time. And, uh, you know, confessions and diaries and letters to mothers by really important British officials saying, I, you know, I, I'm not comfortable with what I'm doing or I feel guilty all the time. And you can think of someone like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, sort of the quintessential figure of this kind. And, and yet they have this understanding of history that that's how you're supposed to feel when you're serving history, that. Great men, uh, you know, it has a lot to do with you know ideas of masculinity. Um, So I do mean great men. That what makes a great man great is that capacity to set aside and override your ordinary um, moral sentiments to keep a stiff upper lip and trust that whatever you're doing is in the service of something um, um, that the future will reveal. To have been right, like right now, it doesn't seem right. Maybe doesn't feel right, but in the future, we will be vindicated and find out that it was worth sort of martyring our consciences and enduring this uh, discomfort and 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 serving history this this way. And so much of what went on in the empire depended on the ability to think like that, to suppress moral qualms, with the understanding that this was serving some greater historical purpose that would become clear in the future.
3: And then what is the place of the, the people who are living under British imperial rule in this story? Where are they in this historical journey?
4: So in in this book, um, what, what you see is this constant pushback against this understanding of history uh, and the idea of future vindication. And you see it you know, in 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 British um, intellectual circles, you can think of the Romantic movement this way, but you also see it amongst um, the the people facing conquest and in their continual acts of resistance um, in different parts of the empire. And so, I I describe some of those ideas as well, um, and uh, especially as you get into the twentieth century. Those ideas are what helps to reinvent the, you know, even the way we think about history. So, as I said earlier, it becomes instead a form of truth telling against the government. I think that shift is partly the result of the uh, influence of the ideas of anti-colonial thinkers in this period. If you think of someone like Mahatma Gandhi, or you think of um, um, Muhammad Iqbal, or you can think of, you know, Caribbean thinkers like um, you know, M.E. Césaire or C.L.R. James or Franz Fanon. So I I bring up some of um, their ways of thinking and that were very explicitly um, pushing back against the way um, um, the British had understood themselves to be serving history. I describe them as anti-historical in that sense.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: Historians are always competing with... um, other, uh, other kinds of people who tell us about the past, who may not be trained in the discipline, who may romanticize the path or mythologize the past. And there's a, we need to be constantly pushing back against that.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate
2: Visit betterhelp.com/slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp slash History Extra. Now, as your
3: book shows, um, historians in the more recent times have often found themselves in opposition to governments around the world and to the actions of the powerful. But has this led to a loss of influence on power and the part of the historical community?
4: Well, it's a different kind of influence. I don't. I mean, I. Th- I think some people leap to the conclusion that if, if historians are no longer um, the ones making policy, then that means they've declined. That the field has declined. I think it's just taken a very different position vis-à-vis uh, power and the powerful. And I think it's a really important role uh, for historians to have in informing the the public, um, and. Um, about the past, about how we got here, about the ways in which um, they're lied to by the government, that's a hugely important uh, role. So I think they're still very influential. They may not be effectual in preventing governments from doing what they are bent on doing. Um, So a couple of the examples I bring up in the book is, you know, the 2003 invasion of Iraq uh, by the United States and Britain, in which, um, you know, a vast majority of historians um, signed a petition saying this was not the right way to go. And yet, obviously, the invasion went on. But we know for the record that historians did stand against it. And that you know, that was their role in that debate. Um, And they continued to, throughout um, the war on terror, they've continued to sort of point out for the public, you know, uh, where um, things have gone wrong, um, where um, they've been, the public has been lied to. So it's a really, really important uh, role. It's just that historians are always competing with um, other, uh, other kinds of people who tell us about the past who may not be trained in the discipline, who may romanticize the path or mythologize the past. And there's a, we need to be constantly pushing back against that. And I'm talking about, you know, whether it's novels or TV shows or, um, uh, you know, uh, economists with a poor sense of understanding of the past or, you know, other politicians who have a poor understanding of the past. Um, so, so I think right now we see a really... Um, kind of expanding uh, and really exciting conversation about uh, the past going on right now in which you hear a lot of historians participating loudly, vigorously, um, and really helping shape our sense of our present and what the possibilities are for the future if we deal with the past in a productive way.
3: And so I, I realise you've, you've kind of asked this already, but what do you see as the role of the historian in the 21st century?
4: I think um, we should con- continue doing what we're doing in criticising power and in participating in public conversations about the past. Um, and I think the fact that those conversations are sort of increasing in scope and volume right now is uh, a result of... Uh, sort of pushback, sort of fed upness, you know, with the fact that those conversations have been silenced for a really long time. There's been a lot of amnesia about empire. Um, deliberately cultivated amnesia, and these conversations are sort of forcing us finally to deal with that past. People sort of get uh, um, hung up on, you know, well, what should be the result? What form should reparations take? And I think for now, especially, I mean, the conver- it's important to know that these conversations are important as an end in themselves, regardless of the actual policies that come out of, of them. I mean, it's really just important to air... Uh, what we know about this past, and then see how that changes the present and, and and in and in changing the present, we automatically then change the future, right? that's how it, that's how it works <laughs> so I, I mean, I don't think there's a need for a radical change in what historians do. I think that this is just a really um Important moment in which historians, we you know, we see a turn towards historians for guidance in in navigating a present that people are really realizing is a product of, um, um, you know, a, a modern uh, a modern period that has been incredibly destructive. I mean, if climate change is the single most uh, important urgent issue we're facing right now, that we know that it is an accumulation of all our past moments. Um, and we need historians to understand how we got here and to help us figure out then, then how, to, how, to, how to move forward. Um, so we, we've learned that history is not a story of progress, right? Because look at where we are. And so, so that, that myth has sort of dissolved right before our eyes. And, it, and, and that's why we're turning more and more, I think, to historians to understand, well, then what is the story? And how did we get here? And what were the mistakes? And how should we think going forward?
3: So the, the big underlying story in your book, which mainly focuses on the past sort of two three hundred years, is empire. What do you think the the underlying story of the sort of next two hundred three hundred years?
4: Oh wow, that's such an interesting question. I mean i I don't think the old issues are going to go away. I mean, the one thing that's sort of Devastatingly uh, taken center stage, that maybe wasn't so much on our minds in in the last two or three hundred years, is climate change, um, and we'll have to face the practical consequences of that. And I, I mean, I I don't really know how um, how we're going to do that. Um, what sort of philosophical um, notions? we will commit to, you know, to to, to navigate that. Let's see. Um, what I hope is that we will recover some of the the wonderful ideas that were put on the table in, in the last couple of hundred years um, instead of an ethical idiom that's based on um, vindication coming in the future that calls on us to sort of sacrifice the present for the sake of future vindication. I hope we instead turn... You know, look at some of the other ideas about what should guide us in our ethical judgments: um, love, uh, connection um, with one another, uh, a sense of moral obligation uh, to one another, um, uh, less <laughs> materialism, um, and you you see uh, all kinds of things. I mean, the Pope Pope Francis just uh, wrote an op-ed that sort of articulated some of these same ideas and these are not new ideas I mean these are he's the Pope right so <laughs> they can't be totally new ideas but you find you know some of the thinkers I already mentioned whether it's William Blake whether it's EP Thompson whether it's Mahatma Gandhi um, Herbert Butterfield I mean these are people who have been these ideas have been on the table all along and I think um, one of the the wonders of history is that we can go back and recover them and use them in our present and in our future and so, I, I mean, I hope that, that we find something useful in the past to help us get through the next couple of hundred years and that it will be better than um, the ideas that have dominated um, the way we act uh, in, in the last couple of hundred years. Um, but let's see.
0: That was Priya Times Monster, History, Conscience and Britain's Empire. It's out now, published by Alan Nail in the UK and by Belknap Press in the US, with the subtitle, How History Makes History. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow to hear Lawrence Rees on Hitler and Stalin.